I heard tell of a woman named Susan who lived in the mountaintops of Virginia. In the late 70s and early 80s, she drove a beat-up Honda Civic, and she simultaneously sponsored seven small congregations. Most of her colleagues never understood how she managed what she did, and from their perspective, they thought it would be chaotic and very complex to handle seven congregations. Susan was a contemporary version of a late 18th century and early 19th century traveling clergy, or what they call a circuit preacher. Circuit preachers, sometimes called saddleback riders, were familiar sights during the Second and Third Great Awakening. Between her monthly preaching visits, Susan kept up with her congregants through letters. Most members did not have emails at this point. It was the 70s and 80s. So she would hand script letters, her primary way of communicating with them. And she would give them encouragement, advice, and words of wisdom. Paul is a kindred spirit to Susan and other circuit-riding preachers throughout history. Paul, like Susan, corresponded by letter with his multiple congregations. Our scripture today comes from Paul's first letter to, Thess to the Thessalonians. That's a fun word to say. This letter was written in 51 AD and is the second oldest book in the New Testament. Now, if you're calculating, that's about 13, oh, sorry, 18 years after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, just in case. Thessalonia was a central point in a thriving and wealthy city. The population was around 200,000 with about 20,000 Jews. And we must also remember that there were God-fearing Greeks who believed in Paul's message. Paul was concerned about the young church. Would they fall under persecution and would they have to deal with the mobs that other churches had to deal with? Would they hold up? Would they be able to survive? So Paul sent Timothy to see how they were doing. And when Timothy returned, reporting that the church was still going strong. However, he also reported that they were lacking an understanding of exactly what their faith was and how to practice their faith. Paul's letter encouraged them to continue pressing and flourishing on in their faith. This letter is also about persevering in faith and continuing to grow in faith. Paul starts his letter with the thanksgiving section, which allows Paul to reconnect with the recipients, reminding them of their faith, God's faithfulness, and their time together in sharing the gospel. So if we look at the first verse, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. So have you heard that before? That's a Paul trait. 
He puts it at the beginning of his letters, just like I read at the very beginning of our service, grace, mercy, and peace to you. That's also one of Paul's thanksgivings at the beginning of his letter. This is a standard greeting used by Paul in most of his letter and helps to confirm along with other sources that the author of the works is indeed the Apostle Paul. In most of these other, his other letters, Paul adds a title to his name, like Paul the Apostle. But he does not in this one. He doesn't add servant of Jesus Christ. He just says Paul. He assumes that the people in this church know who Paul is. But here we see that the title is left off, but yet they still know it's Paul. We thank God, says verse 2, for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Paul thanks God for them, and rightly so, they could continue to grow despite being in a harsh environment. Only God could cause such growth. Now let's look at the evidence of their growth and life and where they are and where the sources come from. So we look at verse 3. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor promoted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Jesus Christ. So have you heard those three before? Faith, love, hope? They're three gifts given by God. These are not physical gifts, but spiritual gifts deposited into our souls. And these graces are not just updated character traits or ineffective virtues. These graces are power that will enable you to serve God and to do God's work. They give you the ability to exert force for good. For, your physics, for you physics scholars, remember the um, formula that's work equals force times distance? That's what these graces give us. These graces provide us with strength and enable us to go the distance. Many of you may be familiar with these, and if you are, you're probably familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. And he says, and Paul is the writer again, and now there are three, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of, this, of these is love. Notice the order there. He elevates love to be the supreme position. Indeed, it is the greatest virtue. But here in verse 3, it's written differently. It's faith, love, and hope. This means and seems to be a natural order as faith is anchored in something that happened in the past Love is something we practice in the present, and hope is something that we have for the future. These three are not mutually exclusive, but they are very much intertwined. Faith drives love. So see if you can follow me. Faith drives love, which drives hope. But hope can also encourage faith and strengthen love, and love boosters 
faith and gives hope. Did you follow that? Faith drives love, which drives hope, but hope can also encourage faith and strengthen love, and love bolsters faith and gives hope. We need all three. And these three should make up the entire life of a Christian. You and I, past, present, and future. For the rest of this message, we're going to go into more detail on these three, drawing on some principles from the remaining verses. You may notice the verses aren't going to cut just like Karen read. I'm going to mix them up a little bit. But we will still look at faith, love, and hope. It's how Paul structures his writings. There's interdependencies between each of them. First, we look at the work produced by faith. And we look at verses 4 and 5, which say, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Chosen. Who is chosen? Who has the love? We can say a lot about faith and what faith is and in us. We can probably do an entire series, sermon series, talking about different aspects of faith. But without Diane here, I'm a little nervous to try that. But looking at this verse, we can say faith comes from the gospel and the Holy Spirit. In Acts 17, which is the story of the founding of the church in Thessalonia, we can see that Paul explains and reasoned from the scripture that the Messiah had to suffer, rise from the dead, and that Jesus is proclaimed to be just that, the Messiah. Notice Paul had reasons here. He reasons it. This faith is not an unreasonable, mindful faith, but faith engages the mind, the intellect, and this faith is reasonable. But the only message that is approved can be found in the gospel. The Holy Spirit will not give deep conviction about anything except what we find in the gospels. Because it is the gospel and the word of Jesus Christ that the faith that we have is built the gospel is about Jesus, so to believe in the gospel is to believe in Jesus. This is a work that produces faith and produces work. Let me say that again. This is the work that produces faith, that produces work, to believe in Jesus. So do this every day. The work requires, and God requires, with your mind Take your time to meditate and pray. All good works start with faith in Christ. If we look again at verses 4 and 5, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 
chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, you know he lives among us. He loved you, not because you are good, not because you're beautiful, not because you're special. Jesus loved us because he chose us. He chose to love you despite your sins. He chose to give up his riches in heaven and to become poorer than poor and to dwell among us. He, our Lord, without a horse or a home, came to be with us in the lowest places on earth. God chose you because God loves you. God did this to show you the depths of God's infinite love. You may wrestle with the question, how do I know if God chose me? But I will go as far as to say this, that most, if not all, of you sitting here today came by some secret working of God in your life. We all came in different circumstances and situations, but somehow, here we are, listening to God's word and the gospel. And if your heart is burning within you, if you have a deep conviction that the gospel is true, that yes, Jesus died for you, that is all I need you to know this morning. I mean, a deep conviction of this type, brothers and sisters, that is the operation of the Holy Spirit. You are chosen. A parent gives up part of their life for their child. A married couple gives their lives to each other. We don't face more persecution or much persecution nowadays, not like the Jews did then. We don't. But there are others that do. Paul says, You know how we lived among you for your sake? You know how we lived among you for your sake. Jesus lived among us. Paul lived among us for your sake. Paul's life was transparent. He did not hold it over his churches, but often worked with his hands for his own room and board. He was persecuted, he was beaten, he was stoned and left for dead, fought wild animals, endured cold nights, was shipwrecked, yet he did not give up his ministry. But sometimes, even on the next day, he would pick himself up and he would go to town and he would do the ministry he was called to do. Finally, we have the endurance inspired by hope. In verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, For they report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who, rec who rescued us from the coming wrath. Hope in Jesus Christ is a joyful and confident expectation of salvation.
It enables us to endure the hard times and keep loving, even when we feel like quitting. The Bible says this hope purifies. And I think in this way, that we expect Christ to come at any moment. Is Christ among us? Are we waiting for the second coming? When we have a hope of something good, we are constantly on the watch. You ever order anything online? You go to the little button that says track your package. You click track your package and you see where it is in the process. And then you refresh the page thinking that the package is going to have moved in that time. That is anticipation. That is the anticipation that we live every day in Christ. You can have this joyful expectation, but even better to have it in Christ. Paul writes that Jesus was raised from the dead. When Jesus comes again, your perishable body will be made imperishable. Your mortal body will be clothed in immortality. And what is on the other side is eternal glory. Like Christ who was risen, that far outweighs any of our troubles here on earth. What's more is that you will be rescued. This hope causes the things of this world to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And it enables us to continue to build each other up day by day until the day we are no longer here. Begin with this work to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whom God sent. May the Holy Spirit convict you of his love, faith, and hope so that you may labor in loving others, prompted by the love of God. May you keep your eye towards the heavens and know that God who loved you chose you. Let these graces become the power of your Christian lives. May your faith, love, and hope produce good works for God. May we love one another bear with one another, serve together, and build each other up so that the world may see our faith in God and know the truth. May you flourish in faith, abound in love, and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.